This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording on Friday, September 18th, 2020. Today on the program, it was just the other day I was thinking, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but there always is something to talk about, as it turns out. But today, we're going to talk about Bushi Road, the parent company of New Japan Pro Wrestling, putting out its annual financial report on the eve of the beginning of the G1 Climax. Then there's been a shakeup in the executive ranks of NBC Universal in some news relevant to WWE. There's a suspicious new trademark out there related to All Elite Wrestling and a possible game that might be coming out in the future. We'll be talking about television viewership from now, perhaps until the end of time. Monday Night Football, Alan Gould of Loop Capital came out with an estimate for WWE stock. You know, I spent the afternoon reflecting on how, you know, I grew up uh, reading a lot of uh, translated Japanese wrestling news, collecting a lot of Japanese wrestling tapes, VHS, that in my teen years. And now here today, only only a few years removed from my teen years, I am now delving deep into financial documents, mostly of WWE, but now it, today it came together as I was trying to read translated Japanese financial documents. All that and more, but first... This week, according to a report from Deadline, Chris McCumber, the president of Entertainment Network's USA Network and Sci-Fi, the man who has had the pleasure of dealing with WWE and Vince McMahon for 19 years, he announced in a memo to employees that he would be leaving the company. Deadline's report says that McCumber spearheaded negotiations of some of the biggest NBCU cable programming deals including licensing WWE Raw, WWE SmackDown, and and other non-wrestling programs like Harry Potter, Wizarding World, and Modern Family. Deadline says at USA he was the point person who oversaw the network's long and successful partnership with WWE. According to the Synopsis newsletter, McCumber's memo to employees read... After nearly 20 years at this tremendous company, this has not been an easy decision. Yet I believe wholeheartedly that NBC Universal is taking the right steps by creating a new organization built for the future. End quote. McCumber's exit comes following a major realignment of NBCU's streaming linear TV networks. NBCU is going through a major restructuring. They were looking for a new role for McCumber. But McCumber decided it was the right time to move on. Under McCumber, the USA Network ranked number one among entertainment networks for 14 straight years. Largely led by its number one program, by the way, WWE Raw. Under this new restructuring within NBC Universal, the entertainment business unit where McCumber was working reports to Francis Berwick the Lifestyle Network's president at NBCU. Berwick has unveiled the new senior leadership team for the entertainment business unit at NBCU. Jeff Bader will head program planning. Val Borland will oversee acquisitions across the entertainment and lifestyle networks and Peacock. Maybe these are some of the new names that WWE will be dealing with in future negotiations, day-to-day communication with NBCU. So what does this mean? Why is this important to, to pro wrestling? You know, one of the Meltzer doctrines that we've been taught over the years is that the most, the most powerful people in the professional wrestling industry are not the wrestlers, are not even the executives of the wrestling companies, but the executives of the TV companies that the uh, wrestling programs are aired on. 
Infamously, it was Jamie Kellner who made the decision, made the call to cancel WWE, to cancel WCW off of PBS and TNT in 2001. And that's ultimately what led to World Championship Wrestling folding once and for all. Because if they still had the time slot, there, there would have been maybe an Eric Bischoff to put a team together, some sort of corporation together to buy WCW. But without the time slot, WCW had no home and had no business. And Eric Bischoff was not uh, able to find a new TV home in time. Time to save the company. So TV executives can be very powerful if they uh, decide there's a new vision for the network that they uh, are overseeing. It could change a lot for wrestling. Maybe in a new vision, uh, wrestling is not included in how we want to sort of rebrand or restyle whatever TV network. Not saying that's going to happen in, in USA Network's case. And it's a different environment today, too, where there's an, a high premium on this live content that pro wrestling is. But uh, according to Dave, he says McCumber was known to be a Paul Heyman supporter back when Paul Heyman, not that long ago, was the executive director of Raw. Before he was relieved of those duties, I believe in June, eventually to be replaced by Bruce Prichard, who is now, who, who at that point began overseeing both SmackDown and Raw. According to Dave Meltzer, McCumber was a supporter of Heyman and wasn't happy when he was taken off of that role with Raw. It had been sold on the idea of a time frame. I sort of suffer through some declining ratings in order to rebuild and recreate a new generation of stars. And he, McCumber, was less happy when the emphasis was put on older stars. Dave writes, whether McCumber still felt that way as ratings somewhat stabilized lately is unclear. Uh, when I heard this news, I asked one person who's a, a veteran of the television industry what he thought of the news, what it means for WWE. He said he doesn't see a lot of impact. The strategic facts uh, about the NBCU and WWE relationship uh, remain the same even with gone. Uh, NBCU and WWE need each other, and no reason to think that that changes because of one executive being out of the picture. And if anything, the opportunity to expand the relationship, uh, getting Peacock involved, maybe putting WWE content on that new streaming service, another way that NBCU might value WWE. So we'll see. And we'll be talking about viewership in just a little bit, the latest on how Raw and SmackDown are doing. And we'll move on now to the Bushi Road Report related to New Japan. And by the way, if you were hearing, it sound, if it sounded like my words were being clipped off at the beginning there for a while, sorry about that. I've made a change that will hopefully prevent that for the rest of the program now. So did you know that Bushi Road, New Japan's parent company, just like WWE, is a publicly traded company? Now, New Japan only accounts for a fraction of Bushi Road's overall revenue, so we don't get a ton of information about New Japan, but we do get some. And this week was Bushi Road's annual report. They, they report quarterly, just like WWE does, but this was the end of the year for them. Their fiscal year ends in July, so they were reporting for the period that ended July 31st, 2020. So we'll be talking about the, the 12 months uh, previous to that. So basically, this is, this is June 1st, 2019 through July 31st, 2020. So that's about five whole months of covid uh, of the COVID era, New Japan stopped running events late February. Of course, COVID was affecting uh, areas like Japan before they started to affect areas like the United States. Of course, if you ask some people here, or at least by the way that some people behave here in the United States, you would think that it still has never affected the United States. But that notwithstanding. So Bushi Road, in the fiscal year 2020, they are reporting 33 billion yen, so that comes out to $316 million U.S. Of that $316 million, how much of it is generated by New Japan? Well, we don't know yet. I think we will know soon. But we have a pretty good idea right now because WWE. I'm so used to talking about WWE in these contexts. So, so New Japan uh, is within Bushiroad's sports division. And in this, this series of slides, sort of like a presentation 
kind of like what we get for the investor presentation for WWE. There's a bunch of slides here, and they break out a number of divisions, including the sports division, and that's where New Japan is, that's where Stardom is, and that is where the, the kickboxing organization that uh, Bushi Road recently sold was. So the sports division generated $48 million. I'm converting that from 5.021 billion yen. So $48 million, just under $50 million in revenue in the sports division, which is down slightly from the previous year, which did 51. So again, going from 48 to 51, that's about the same as it did in fiscal year 2018 when it did about $48 million. So basically what I think this means is that the revenue for New Japan will be slightly down year over year in this fiscal year. Uh, the sports division, the vast majority of it seems to be New Japan revenue. I suppose it could be even even lower than the sports division year over year change indicates because now we've got maybe more things like mixed stardom. I don't know if stardom is a bigger piece of revenue than whatever was previously in that sports division. Unfortunately, as you can tell, since since Bushiroad holds so many uh, other entities within it that are not wrestling organizations, there's less I know about Bushiroad. But uh, fiscal year 2019, we do know because New Japan reported separately, and it is on their official website right now, in fact. If you look at the company profile section of the New Japan official website, you will see that it lists uh, $5.4 billion, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> $5.4 billion yen in revenue. For fiscal year 2019, that's last fiscal year, which is an all-time high for the company, going all the way back to, we believe, 1972. And according to PWAnalysis.com, we've got some records going all the way back to 1980. But what else about New Japan did we learn from this report uh, from Bushi Road? And did we learn anything about Stardom? Not really. It, Stardom is mentioned as as a company that they own and as, as a company that is included uh, in the in the sports division, and in the live IP business. But New, but New Japan does highlight that uh, this company, New Japan, did 70,071 uh, attendees as part of Wrestle Kingdom in the two-day event at the Tokyo Dome. And it mentions that they stopped doing events in February because of the pandemic. Uh, but they point out that New Japan World, despite the pandemic, uh, what does it say here? In this, in this translated version of J Japanese I have here, uh, Translated into English, of course. Uh, on the other hand, the video distribution service, New Japan Pro Wrestling World, has 100,000 paying members, which is about what we've believed that New Japan World has had uh, for a couple of years now. Let me look. Because if I pull up the WrestleNomics full year 2019 uh, report, there is a page here that addresses subscription video on demand. And uh, there's a graph for New Japan World subscribers. So basically, this is what I believe, according to things that New Japan itself has said, and things that I've been able to, well, have led me to believe what I believe. Basically, the, the trend is uh, 2017. Of course, just like WrestleMania, the peak is at the peak event, Wrestle Kingdom. But here, indicating in the report maybe around the time of the report or maybe around the time of the the end of the period which is July 100,000 subscribers so Japan World doing around 100,000 subscribers since it looks like about the middle of 2019 so just hovering around that same level so 100,000 subscribers you think about that in the context of the WWE network which does just over one and a half million subscribers on a regular basis yeah, so that's about one-fifteenth, or about 7% of what WWE does for their subscription streaming service. So that continues to be a distinguishing uh, quality of New Japan, that it is not the strong media company that the, uh, that the U.S., major U.S. companies are. Uh, New Japan's revenue, as, as far as we know, and as far as I believe, is largely driven by ticket revenue still and probably even more so since New Japan uh, lost its TV deal in the U.S. on Axis. So New Japan is still on TV, of course, in Japan through its TV partner and part owner, TV Asahi. I, I would guess that they get some money from that. They share the money, in fact, for New Japan World with TV Asahi. They share the ownership of the streaming service. But uh, in Bushiroad's IPO in 2018, they disclosed that uh, about, they gave some approximate language about this, but they, they said that 
live events accounted for about 50% of New Japan's revenue and about uh, 20% of the revenue coming from media, or what they called content, and about 30% coming from merchandise sales. And that was referring to fiscal year 2018. So no telling how things have changed since then. There seems to be no more hot topic money anymore since then. There's no more access money. If there was much access money, hard to tell. But while we're talking about New Japan's business on an annual basis, now that their fiscal year has ended, let's take a look at their annual attendance. So New Japan reports what I believe are total attendances for each event on their official website. So when I say total attendance, I mean I believe they are reporting a number that includes comps, includes free tickets. Why do I think that? Because Bushi Road put out a graph uh, last year showing the trend of New Japan attendance and the numbers were slightly lower than the numbers that you get when you total the numbers that are reported on New Japan's website. And the discrepancies uh, between the annual totals from the website compared to the Bushi Road report were between about 3 and 5%. Well, maybe 5.6% is the highest there. So between 3 and 6%. So that seems like a reasonable percentage of comps. So maybe this, this is total attendance. That's how I come to believe that. So total attendance in this fiscal year for New Japan is 317,000. So that is, of course, down from last year that had uh, 444,500 in total attendance. Of course, there's a great effect there uh, related to COVID, cutting events off uh, in late February. And we've had some events here uh, in the post-pandemic world with a limited capacity. They just did a an event with over 4,000 fans in attendance at Jingu Stadium in an outdoor event. But maybe to make a fair uh, comparison, what if we look at you know, everything, uh, let's do January and prior or maybe we probably even want to uh, do a, a differential that includes and excludes Wrestle Kingdom, which is going to be greatly skewed by having two Tokyo Dome events instead of just one in the years prior. So let's take a look. Let's call this our COVID pro forma for New Japan. And what we find is that attendance was up substantially from the period, again, comparing August. Did I say June earlier? God. August. I described earlier the, the fiscal year being June through July, which would be a 13-month period. August through July. Anyway, uh, so from the period of August through January, so that's it, August, September, October, November, December, January, six-month period, a six-month period of non-COVID. Does that make sense? August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June and the entire month of July. Yeah, that's so half of this year for in Japan involves the pandemic. Uh, so in the the non-COVID half of the year for New Japan, they have a total attendance of 270,000, which is up substantially from 218,000 the prior year. What is that in a percent? That is up 24% from the prior year. Uh, that's total attendance. Now, they did run a lot more events than usual in this period. They ran 88 events in the year before. And in fact, in all four prior years that we've got here, they ran 73 events or 76 events. So a lot more events. But the average attendance was slightly, very slightly up. Uh, 3,069 uh, was the average attendance up from 2,980. Uh, 2, but what is that in a percent? That is a 3% increase in average attendance as well. Um, by the way, this, this increase, even if we, maybe it's, maybe it's just because you got Wrestle Kingdom twice. You had two, two Tokyo Domes. But actually, if you exclude the Wrestle Kingdom events across all years, uh, total attendance in this comparison for this fiscal year that has just ended, still up 11%. Uh, so, so a lot of that 24% increase is due to the double Wrestle Kingdom Tokyo Dome situation. But uh, still, if you exclude that, you're still up uh, 11%. Now, that's where this is where the average attendance doesn't look so great, though. You got more events, more attendance, but your average, when you exclude the WrestleMania, WrestleMania, Wrestle Kingdom skew, the average attendance is down by 7%. So, average attendance, uh, excluding Wrestle Kingdom, 2,300 as opposed to 2,500 the year prior, which is the peak. Uh, the trends uh, from 
fiscal year 2016 uh, gradually increasing each year, uh, both in terms of average attendance and total attendance. So, uh, but even total attendance, uh, excluding the Wrestle Kingdoms, was was up uh, quite a bit, 12%, 11%, excuse me. So, in other words, it looks like New Japan was on track to have a pretty good year, pandemic notwithstanding, uh, had COVID not happened. And again, that's the, the this attendance, while we talk about how attendance and live events in the case of WWE, in the case of AEW, is not as important as it is to New Japan. In the case of WWE, they're not even profitable uh on the whole, for most events, but they are profitable, uh, yes, when you include WrestleMania, but if you took the WrestleMania piece out, uh, WWE's live event division would probably not be profitable. But for New Japan, that is 50% of their business. They're still living uh, in the old model of wrestling business, where live events is the biggest piece of revenue, as opposed to WWE and AEW, where the biggest piece of, of revenue is media. So what else? They They did mention that they started the New Japan USA uh, business officially in November. And there's a really great article. Again, I think I mentioned it earlier from PWAnalysis.com that has some graphs. This was done in 2018, but it has some graphs that that show sort of a line graph. It shows a line graph going all the way back to 1980 through 2018. Uh, So revenue data going back that far for New Japan showing that the revenue for New Japan is at its all-time high in this era. Um, so I would expect a revenue number to come out when New Japan updates their company profile uh, page on their website whenever they do that. And uh, maybe maybe next month, maybe in a month and a half from now, we'll find the, the secret balance sheet that will let us know how profitable New Japan was in this fiscal year. Uh, previously, we've been able to find Balance sheets going back to 2007 that show net income, among other uh, financial data for the company. Speaking of profit, I should mention that uh, Bushi Road, while they generated $316 million in revenue, they were also profitable in the fiscal year with a net income of $15 million, or 1.551 billion yen. That revenue is up by 3%, and that net income is down by 14%. So, but still a profitable year for the parent company of New Japan. They seem to be doing okay. And these, these major financial metrics for, for Bushi Road were slightly uh, over their projections. So, and did you know that the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame season is upon us once again? And in uh, commemoration of the addition to the ballot of Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash. Did you know that Kevin Nash is a an early pioneer of WrestleNomics. I can talk about it all day, but I think, you know, sometimes a picture says a thousand words. That's and, true. Uh, what, I, what I basically did here was I, I constructed a graph. Oh, wow. And, all right. Uh, okay. Starts in 1993, you can see with, uh, with Hogan and what he drew that year, which was after. This is all profits, of course. Profits to the WWF at that time was $20 million. Bret Hart took over $17 million. Nash as the Diesel character, well over a hundred million dollars. That's huge, without my merchandise. Yeah, huge spike in profits. Huge spike. Right huge spike. Largest, largest grossing champion in the history of, of the business, including merchandise. Merchandise would be a separate chart. Of course, Austin, a great run. Austin, nearly, nearly, nearly up there with with my run, but but nowhere close. And of course, the drastic drop off with with Rock there uh, after the Austin era. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, that kind of shows uh, where the businesses went. Of course, at this time right here, the NWO spike that, that I, uh, with me at the helm, would have, you know, surpassed all this in the $300 million. So really, you just took your spike from the WWF. And moved it. And it, yeah, just moved it over to WCW. Spiked them, too. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of spiking. Imagine if it with me on spike. Thanks to Garrett Kidney for sharing that pioneering moment in the history of professional wrestling research earlier this week. And then from there, there were some interesting uh, records that appeared on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website. When you do a search, you can search for any, any trademark owner, and you can do a search for wrestling companies like 
World Wrestling Entertainment, even New Japan Pro Wrestling, even All Elite Wrestling. And what would you find right now if you searched the USPTO search database for All Elite Wrestling? You would find... Any, anyone can do this, by the way. It only seems to work in, uh, it doesn't work in Chrome anyway. I use Microsoft Edge and it works there. But if you go in there and you go into their search system, you search by owner, you search for All Elite Wrestling, you see records of all their trademarks and they're sorted by recency. So you see the, f- the newest ones up there first. And what you see is a new trademark for something called All Elite Wrestling Elite General Manager. And it's just a trademark filing record, so it doesn't tell you what their plans are for what exactly they want to use this trademark for. But they do tell you what goods and services you know, might be applied to this, uh, to this trademark. That sounded like a contradiction, didn't it? Well, basically, we don't have details about what this thing is, but it tells you the kind of product that this is going to be. So under the goods and services statement, it, it, it says uh, downloadable game software, downloadable computer game software for use on mobile and cellular phones. Does anybody use the word cellular phone anymore? Anyway, downloadable electronic game software for use on handheld computers and mobile gaming devices. Downloadable video game programs and recorded video game software. So what it sure sounds like is some kind of mobile game called All Elite Wrestling, Elite General Manager. There's even another uh, trademark application in there about... Elite GM. So there's All Elite Wrestling colon Elite General Manager and another one that is just Elite GM. Just as, sounds like it's just a shorter version of the other one. So this trademark uh, was applied for on September 14th. That was Monday. And uh, when I share this uh, trademark filing record on, on Twitter, this led to all sorts of speculation that maybe, you know, considering the, the GM, the General Manager aspect of the name, People are speculating that maybe this sounds like some sort of, you know, wrestling simulator game or some sort of, you know, booking simulator game like uh, Extreme Warfare Revenge, old EWR. I think the kids today play uh, something called TEW. I even play. I'm old enough to remember something called TNM7 brought to you by programmer Oliver Kopp. Yes, I paid my, I think it was $35 license fee for my, for my authorized version of TNM7. But man, that's come to think of it, it's how I, I guess, came to know a lot of uh, wrestlers' names because it had this enormous database of wrestlers. Um, but anyway, you know, it's uh, if you don't know what things like EWR or TEW or TNM, it's basically you become a, a wrestling booker or promoter. You have a, a promotion and you put together, you know, you sign wrestlers and you put together all sorts of cards over time and you build a promotion. And in the more recent games, you're competing with other promotions and there's all sorts of fun stuff. So who knows, maybe this is some sort of mobile version of a game like that. Could be. We don't know. So the reactions, at least to to my tweet, was people being pretty excited about it. Uh, Some discussion about whether or not Tony Khan grew up being uh, somebody who played EWR a lot. So who knows, as far as business, uh, it's very important that AEW gets into the licensing business when it comes to games. Uh, there is talk that AEW will be doing a console game. There's been quite a bit of talk about that. There's been no news, though, about an actual partner to do the game with. Of course, WWE's partner is 2K Sports and Take-Two Entertainment. Uh, WWE does an, a number of mobile games. So it's definitely an area where there's an opportunity to grow revenue. Now, AEW already doing some product licensing uh, in terms of doing action figures through the... In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy slab packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous 
brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network the wicked cool toys brand with their partner jazzwares you can get the the aw action figures at walmart you can you can even insure them you can get a protection plan if you buy the Chris Jericho, probably any of them, but I'm looking at the, the Chris Jericho figure on the Walmart website. You can get a two-year or a three-year protection plan for two or three dollars. And then from there, it's time to talk about wrestling TV viewership. So WWE Raw went head-to-head with Monday Night Football once again as the NFL regular season has begun on time here in the era of COVID. Before we get to that, though, we have W Smackdown on Friday doing its highest viewership since April. 2.2 million viewers. A pretty good number these days. Smackdown doing pretty well lately since the Thunderdome, since the return of the big dog, Roman Reigns. Smackdown has turned around a trend that had viewership going down below 2 million for a while there in July. And uh, to W's credit, I think uh, the Thunderdome has helped. I think uh, with SmackDown in particular, the return of Roman Reigns and the interest in this, you know, Roman Reigns appearing finally as a heel in a role that uh, probably a lot of fans were curious about for a number of years here. Of course, it's all happening bizarrely with no live audience. There's screens with fans in them, but they're not really uh, reacting. But anyway... Maybe, I mean, alert, you know, send the alert out to uh, Roman Reigns' stand Twitter. Uh, maybe Roman Reigns, in this case, is a draw. So the WWE Raw began going head-to-head with the NFL's Monday Night Football again, as it has every year since 1993. So that began again this Monday. Previous patterns suggest that Raw viewership may fall by as much as 20 to 25% throughout the season. I talked about this last week. You know, against the first night of Monday Night Football, Raw, compared to the previous four weeks, sometimes tends to drop by double digits of percent when the season opens. Not this time, though. This time doing okay compared to last year when against the trailing four episodes the median of those trailing four episodes last year. Raw fell by 16%. The year before that, though, only 5%. But this year, Raw fell, compared to the median of its previous four weeks, fell by 7%. So not too bad. Although that third hour did go down to just over 1.5 million viewers. Monday Night Football itself, though, uh, doing the 
lowest total audience. There's two games. Average the two games together, doing its lowest total audience in the average of those two games on the Showbuzz Daily Record that goes back, well, in this case, to 2015. Huge help, by the way, by our friend Mr. Detlef, who collected, who went through Showbuzz Daily and collected all of the Monday Night Football viewership data for me, which has just been so much fun to put into the the spreadsheet and go through, to look at the Monday Night Football trends and to compare those to how Raw did, and to find out, you can, and you just, just doing football-nomics I found myself doing this week, to find out that over this time, 2015 to 2019, it's, uh, there, there isn't much question about it. On Monday nights, on Monday nights, the Dallas Cowboys are a draw. That notwithstanding, you may be wondering, you know, all television is down, so the people say. Raw is certainly down over the course of many years. Year-over-year comparisons, just they, it, it gets lower every year. So what is it like? You know, we know that scripted entertainment especially is taking a hard hit, but what about other things? You know, the biggest property in all of television, the NFL, and one of the most marquee games that there is, Monday Night Football, been a big deal for generations. You know, going back to Howard Cosell. You know it's a great TV movie, by the way. It might have even aired on USC Network. I'm going to have to look. But the, uh, the Howard Cosell biopic. Starring John Turturro. But anyway, from 2015 to 2000, well, to 2020, how far has the opening night fallen? Because it certainly has fallen. We're not, we're not even expecting viewership to grow at this point. Actually, there, there, there was a year or two here where things are up on a year-over-year basis. But anyway, from, from 2015 to 2020, how far has the opening night from Monday Night Football fallen? And how does that fall compare to... Raw's fall. Well, total viewership for Monday Night Football from 2015 on the opening night to 2020 on the opening night down 34%. Down by one third. Way back in 2015 doing 14 million viewers this past Monday. Doing 9.2 million viewers. That's the total audience. The key demo. The key demo. The only thing that matters. The key demo as you would expect is is a, a, a deeper fall. A 42% fall over the same time period. 5.63 back in September 2015 to a 3.27 this past Monday. So again, down 34% total audience, down 42% key demo. And how does that compare to Raw over the same time period? Down 50% total audience, down 56% key demo. So... Monday Night Football, falling quite a bit. Raw, falling even more. Raw has lost half of its audience, TV audience. I mean, people are consuming just less than they may be consuming Raw and following Raw in some other manner. But the linear TV audience has fallen in half for Raw between 2015 and 2020. (laughs) That said, they they held up better than expected uh, this past Monday. And actually, Monday Night Football had been on in upwards friend uh, through 2018 and 2019 so we'll see if this opening day is a sign of things to come for Monday Night Football in a, in a uh, other footballonomics discovery that does have a wrestling tie-in Monday Night Football games between strong teams at least in my formulation of strong teams does correlate there is a moderate relationship a 0.39 R squared, which I think is, is decent predictability for, for what we're talking about here. Monday Night Football games between strong teams that have a lot of wins, and if those games happen deeper in the season, it tends to drive TV viewership. I'm defining game strength here as combined wins over combined games played between the two teams times the week number minus combined losses of the two teams over the combined games of the two teams times the week number. So basically, if you've got two teams that have a lot of wins and not a lot of losses, and we're factoring in how deep into the season we are, the game tends to do a higher audience. Lots of wins, not many losses, two teams like that meet late in the season, high stakes related to the playoffs. It tends to drive an audience. What could wrestling learn from that? 
I'm not sure. Wins and stakes? Could it be that simple? But wrestling needs needs to be creative and have angles. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, everybody's got to be undefeated, but like, think about how over Bill Goldberg got and Ryback got. My God, was was Ryback having great matches? No. Was Ryback cutting great promos? No. Could Ryback keep people safe in the ring if you ask CM Punk? No. But that guy got so over. And then once he stopped winning all of his matches, not so much. But I, I, I digress. Maybe, maybe pro wrestling is all about new gimmicks and new angles and new ideas. But anyway, back to viewership. Does this show that uh, all that's left is the hardcores, that the, uh, the, the less mainstreamy NFL-prone fans who would be prone to leave and go watch football in September, maybe those fans in large part are already gone, have already tuned out through the years. And uh, I, I think things like this are on a spectrum. Um, I think we need to, to wait to let it play out and see what happens throughout the course of the season. This is just one week. There was a big tune out in hour three. I tend to reject this idea that all that's left is the hardcores. I tend to reject this idea that there is even much of a distinction between this hardcore audience and this supposedly casual audience and that they have these wildly different tastes. But I, and I also think in many ways what we might conceive of as the hardcore wrestling fan is just as likely to be disenchanted with uh, Raw as the mainstream fan may be likely to be apathetic. And always remember that a decrease in viewership doesn't mean that somebody's not watching the program outright anymore. A decrease in viewership may just as well mean, and I suspect in large part means that a viewer is just watching a smaller portion of the program. Remembering that the viewership numbers that we see are not, it's not like a YouTube view where you click on it and you're, you know, if you watch three seconds of the video, you're counted as a view. No, it's a, it's an average. It's a minute by minute average of how many people watch the program throughout the duration. Wow. So that, that, uh, that, uh, Monday Night Football music really gets me going. Should uh, just have that playing on a loop in my in my headphones at all times. Then from there, Wednesday night wrestling, the Wednesday night competition returned this Wednesday for the first time since August I think twelfth. AEW and WWE NXT went head to head on Wednesday night in their normal time slot after weeks of preemptions due to hockey games and basketball games. AEW. Uh, one again the, the the total audience and the key demo eight hundred eighty six thousand viewers to NXT's eight hundred sixty I'm sorry six hundred and eighty nine viewers AEW uh, nearly doubling NXT in the key demo point three four for AEW point one eight for NXT NXT continuing to clearly draw an older audience uh, AEW winning in every key demo except for P fifty plus again. This week, man, I, I need the, the NFL Monday Night Football theme playing not just in my earphones when I record the show, but just in my in my head throughout my life. I think that would that would help me get through life better. Yeah. So anyway, uh, AW ranking number three in the demo, its highest ranking since January in that area. So as, as NXT continues to uh, to be the, on the losing end of the Wednesday Night Wars, um, I think there there is a bright side to NXT's story here, uh, particularly when you when you look at the the recovery from the decline uh, in COVID, or just look at a a what what I like to put in the spreadsheet here is a, a year to date growth rate uh, for all four major wrestling programs, and if you do that and you do a rolling four week median, what you find is that NXT has uh, has bounced back the best. Uh, through July, anyway, things get weird and different in August because there's all these preemptions, and NXT and AEW are running unopposed on many weeks. The, the data shows this recovery story for NXT, which no, it, nobody really talks about, right? Because NXT is losing this head-to-head, this very important head-to-head battle with AEW. It's it's there to to stunt AEW's growth, basically, to keep AEW's numbers a little bit lower. 
by putting another wrestling program head to head with it. And they've de- they're definitively losing that competition, at least with people under the age of 50. Um, but Raw and SmackDown, since January 1st, are down some, let's, let's just talk about P2+, Plus, talking about total viewership, total audience. Raw and SmackDown, uh, Raw on a rolling median, uh, four-week median average, down about 30% from January 1st. SmackDown doing better and recovering, and Roman Reigns is there, and he's heel, and uh, the Thunderdome is there. Well, the Thunderdome is on Raw as well, but uh, SmackDown doing around 15, negative 15% of what it had been doing on January 1st. And you've got AEW and NXT both at, the, at around the, the negative 10 range, you know, doing better, holding up better through this than Raw and SmackDown. NXT even, as I said, in June and July, uh, getting to right about zero. But of course, at the beginning of the year, NXT still was not winning the war against AEW. It is the least viewed of the four major programs. But it is also losing its audience the least. AEW, on the other hand, climbing back up in terms of a year-to-date growth rate. And as of late, has surpassed NXT in that regard. Anyway, I don't know if any of that makes sense. You can see the graph uh, on my Twitter, at Brandon Thurston. But that's some data. But what, what does this mean? It goes back to what I think of as, as the Brandon Ross point that was brought up to Vince McMahon on the latest earnings call at the end of July. Why have uh, NXT and AEW bounced back from COVID better than Raw and SmackDown? And I think it comes down to that NXT and AEW are promising brands. And Raw and SmackDown are these aging brands that have, like gravity, uh, being put on a, a higher profile network notwithstanding. Raw and SmackDown, which is what has happened to SmackDown. But Raw and SmackDown are these aging brands that, just like gravity, have fallen year after year in an environment where all TV is, is falling. But NXT and AEW are holding up better. And Monday Night Football, as we see another example of some sort of live sports-like programming that is holding up, is falling, but holding up better than Raw, at least. And clearly the difference, to me, is that you've got Vince McMahon at the helm of Raw and SmackDown, and now NXT and AEW with comparable distribution. NXT on the USA Network, no longer on the WWE Network. AEW Dynamite on TNT and a similar number of homes as the USA Network. And as I've said elsewhere, you can liken it to, to a, a sinking ship where you've got, you've, you're, you're, you've got a leak and water is coming in and you bail out the water, but the water is coming in so fast on Raw and SmackDown, it's coming in faster than Vince McMahon can bail it out. And NXT and, and AEW may be leaking water as well, but they're, they've been able to manage it better. So basically, I, I stand by what I had said about 12 months ago that the current hierarchy of the wrestling world where Raw and SmackDown are these two towering brands that lead the wrestling world, I don't think that that hierarchy is sustainable in a world where two other brands that Vince McMahon does not control the creative of and have similar strength of distribution, I don't think that hierarchy, that order, is sustainable when NXT and AEW have demonstrably, you can say what you want about the quality of NXT since it's moved to the USA Network, but they have demonstrably shown that they have a better ability to tell compelling stories, as they say, and to create stars, develop stars, and to put on decent TV shows. And this matters in a big way. We're sort of tying the whole program together. We talked at the top about how uh, NBCU executive Chris McComber is out, and there'll be new executives that WWE will have to deal with uh, as it relates to Raw and, and NXT for that matter. But the big question, if you, if you take one thing away from this podcast today, the big question going forward as we head towards the middle of 2023, I have been saying on a couple of occasions, 2022, I was wrong though, the TV negotiations would happen 18 months out of the expiration for, say, WWE's deals, those expire fall 2024. 18 months out from that, when negotiations would happen in all likelihood, would be the middle of 2023. And that that time, the middle of 2023, when perhaps AEW gets its deal uh, 
option picked up by Warner Media, extending it to expire to the end of 2024, meaning that AEW would line up its negotiations roughly with WWE's. Perhaps there would be comparisons made between the value of AEW's TV brands and WWE's. So the big question is how close at that time will AEW Dynamite's viewership be to either of WWE's programs? Just under three years from now. And keep in mind, maybe uh, I think the prevailing theory is that NXT is a two-year deal. Two years from October 2019. That would make that deal expire, if that's the case, two years, October 2021. Maybe NXT even ends up not being head-to-head with AEW Dynamite anymore. Who knows? But maybe it stays. In any case, I'm willing to predict that by the beginning of 2023, the lead that Raw, at least, currently has over AEW Dynamite in the P18-49 to demographic, that lead will be gone. How much is that lead right now? Let's go with July, August, and September. We're, we're weird. September's not done, done yet. September, there's Labor Day. There's preemptions in September. There's preemptions in August. So let's look at July as sort of a clean month. July, average key demo rating for Raw, 0.48. 0.48 to AEW's 0.30. So far through September, let's just look at September. And keep in mind that this includes three weeks for AEW, two of which were unopposed by competition from NXT. Average key demo through September so far for AEW is 0.36 to Raw at this point, which has been compromised by Labor Day and by the first week so far of Monday Night Football. Again, AEW 0.36 in September, Monday Night Raw 0.49. So a sizable lead, a lead for Raw just in this compromised month of September of 36%. Bring it out to July, it's a lead of 62%. Go further to June, it's a lead of 101% for Raw in the key demo. So am I out of my mind? How possibly would AEW Dynamite equal Raw in the key demo? Where would they, they would have to grow their audience. They would have to gain fans. I don't think so. Not necessarily. I think AEW just has to hold up better than Raw has to hold up. Keep in mind, Raw is a program that it just in uh, month over month comparisons in some of these months is, is dropping by double digits of percent while AEW in those same months has gained in double digits of percent. And there may be quick fixes like Raw Underground and the Thunderdome. But more often than not, Raw's viewership has declined. And the only long-term fix is a long-term fix that Vince McMahon cannot apply. That's in the development of new stars that people care about. TV shows with good stories that are compelling to watch. Matches that seem to matter. And a tone to the TV program that seems to respect the people who watch it, and things of that nature. And Alan Gould of Loop Capital, one of the stock analysts who covers WWE stock, came out with an updated estimate this week. He raises rating on the stock from a, from a sell to a hold. Basically, that means he doesn't think the stock is going to fall much farther than where it's at, which, by the way, WWE stock, as I sit here today, is worth $40.16 per share. And this stock has been all over the place in the last 12 months. Everywhere from a 52-week high of $74 to a 52-week low of 29 He lowered his 2020 earnings estimate, just lowering it slightly. He's got an EPS of $1.67, lowering that from $1.72. Still way above the consensus of the analysts who have it at $1.57. Basically, this means that he thinks that uh, WWE is going to end up with $143 million of net income, which would shatter its current annual record. I'm calculating that based on the most recent report of diluted shares. Consensus analysts expecting about $134 million of net income, also breaking the record by uh, by uh, $35 million. The current record is $99.6 million of net income recorded in 2018. I'm still way lower than anybody here. I gave it a, an EPS for the year of $1.15 and $100 million of net income, just barely breaking the annual record 
Gould forecasts that WWE's next U.S. TV rights negotiation in 2024, W will get a 40% increase, which would put its current deal, which is 400, I'm sorry, yeah, $470 million up to $658 million for Raw and SmackDown combined. That would be one U.S. TV deal. What the average annual value of one year of U.S. TV revenue would be equal to WWE's entire revenue in the year 2015. Every aspect of business, every TV deal, W Network, every ticket sale, every piece of merchandise sold, all the money they get from licensing, all of it, 2015, would be equal to just the U.S., just the just Raw and SmackDown in the U.S., if, if he's correct, 40% increase. Just to give you an idea of how much WTV rights fees uh, have exploded and how much at least one analyst uh, expects them to continue to grow, which seems realistic to me. Even in this scenario that I predict where uh, AEW and and WWE may end up getting a a pretty comparable amount of money per hour of content that they produce uh, in in a future round of negotiations. And I think that's important to understand when you're going to analyze WWE stock. Why? Because there's a competitor in the wrestling space that is, I think, going to end up competing with WWE for its most valuable piece of revenue. In the long term, it's not going to happen next year, obviously, because that's just the nature of the contracts. But by 2024, yes. And up to this point, you know, WWE's been a publicly traded company since 1999. It has not required that much special wrestling knowledge or understanding about what's happening in the wrestling industry or the wrestling culture to, to analyze this company. Especially in recent years, it's been very much approached as a media company, you know, doing this streaming service that was exciting to a lot of people. And it didn't require a lot of wrestling knowledge. And it's important to know that wrestling uh, wrestling is a star-driven business. But in this period, the vast majority of it in which WWE has been a publicly traded company, stars haven't mattered that much in terms of the volatility of the company. And for the vast majority of the time that WWE has been a publicly traded company, they haven't faced any really serious competition. There's been TNA, Impact Wrestling. There's been some Ring of Honor. There's been a little bit of New Japan. They like to say that their competition is everything in entertainment and sports. They've enjoyed this great period of peace. This great period of Pax McManna, where they've had no real serious competition. And that period came to an end last year. And I'm not sure all of the stock analysts, maybe some of them do, but I'm not sure all the stock analysts, nor WCEO, have a great understanding of what's cool and what's not in the wrestling industry. Anyway, this all sounds like a great pitch about why uh, Lindsdale Train and BlackRock Capital should hire me as a consultant to advise them about the view stock. Or they could just listen to this podcast. Thousands and thousands of dollars in value here on Russellnomics Radio. You get it for free. And by the way, if you wish to support, you can go to patreon.com slash Russellnomics and sign up and contribute $5 a month and everything remains free. And I'll, I'll appreciate your support. And your funds will be used to invest in research fees, better hardware, and better software. So that's about all I have for this week. You can go to WrestleNomics.com and see the, the, the wrestling business stock ticker that rolls across the top of WrestleNomics.com. You can also read there, Donald and Vince, Vince and Donald, the story of two billionaires. There are many remarkable similarities and why one may be slightly less callous than the other. And uh, I, I, I will say this, too. Uh, a few months ago, I did a, a tweet thread about uh, a basically false, at least misleading statement that Stephanie McMahon said about the profitability of the WWE Network. And someone said to me that, uh, you know, it was basically a fact check uh, Twitter thread. And someone said to me that, you know, covering the McMahons uh, should have prepared us for covering Donald. And uh, I think the similarity is largely that the McMahons and Donald come from worlds where they're used to being able to say things, essentially make a sales pitch and not have to really worry about anyone digging into whether or not what they're saying is true. And I think Donald is still operating like he's doing business, selling something. He's not used to being a politician whose words uh, will be held to any careful scrutiny. 
you know, truth isn't his or the McMahon's highest concern, let's say. Uh, and keeping, keeping even their lies consistent uh, with one another isn't their concern either. Their concern is impressing the other person in this conversation, you know, giving them the sales pitch and, and getting them to buy, getting through the conversation, letting them know that, you know, everything is great. Happy talk. So, until next time, you can go to WrestleNomics.com. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.